recording here. All right, so continuing our study uh, in the confession, we are currently looking at the covenant, right? This takes up chapters 7 all the way through uh, chapter 20. And if you remember, two weeks ago, we started looking at a covenant servant, right? So we started looking at the person and work of Christ, which is chapter 8 of our confession. And two weeks ago, we looked at his person. And this morning, we're looking at the work of Christ. So we're going to look at paragraphs 4 through 6, paragraph 8, and then paragraph 10. So quick review. Like I said, two weeks ago, we looked at the person of Christ. We looked at paragraph 1, his appointment as mediator. We talked about the covenant of redemption, right? The covenant between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, And that this covenant of redemption is the foundation of the covenant of grace. We also looked at his identity. So we looked at his divinity and his humanity. And how his divinity and humanity are in one person. Paragraph three, his suitability as mediator. So we, we considered how the Holy Spirit made him suitable, right, to be mediator and worked in his life. Then we considered a clarification of how we talk about the divine and human nature in Christ, right? We said that what can be said of one nature, right, cannot be said of the other, right? The human nature suffers, the divine nature does not. But what can be said of one nature must be said of the whole person. And is done so often throughout Scripture. And then finally, the exclusivity of Christ as our mediator. Given all of this, given his divinity, his humanity in one person, his suitability, we ended by considering that this office of mediator is only proper to Christ as divine and human in one person. So today, we turn to the work of Christ. We're going to look at paragraphs 4, 5, and 6. So look at Christ's work in history. We look at Christ's work in God's purpose. And then we're also going to look at Christ's work in all of time. Then we're going to consider paragraph 8. We'll see his work in the church. And then finally, in paragraph 9, his work in light of our need. All right, so paragraph 4, his work in history. Uh, there are multiple ways of, of dividing up the work of Christ, and we're going to see that this morning. Uh, one of those is dividing his work up by his humiliation and his exaltation. Okay? These are two categories that we often see when we study um, Christ and his work, and that's what we see here in this paragraph. What I've highlighted there in red uh, is generally considered his humiliation, and then in blue is his exaltation. So this office, that is the office of mediator, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption." There's his humiliation, his exaltation. On the third day, he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. So when our confession turns to his work in history, 
Um, it divides his work up in history according to these two categories, his humiliation and his exaltation. So first, his humiliation. Right? He was made under the law. What I want to highlight here is the necessity of the incarnation. We kind of, uh, as Christians, talk about the incarnation as if it's just simply uh, what prepares the way for his death. Right? Like he has to be incarnate if he's going to die. Right? So it's just merely something that kind of prepares the, the way for that. But no, the way that scripture speaks of the incarnation, it is a redemptive act. Right? It's not just something that prepares for redemption. We see this in Galatians 4. Right? Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So the first act of Christ's humiliation in the incarnation is, is assuming, right, taking on our human nature to fulfill the law in our place, right? This is another aspect of his humiliation, right? His, the perfection of his obedience. Um, this paragraph, really this whole chapter, um, our confession, one of the reasons that I love our confession is it's so particular in its language. It's so careful in its language. But really, this, this whole chapter is so particularly worded, so carefully worded. Just think about that right there. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Right? Christ fulfilled the law perfectly on your behalf. We also see the humanity of his suffering here. Um, first of all, just note the pastoral tone here, the, 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 the careful tone that he doesn't just undergo punishment, right? He underwent punishment due to us, right? Which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us. But again, I can't talk about everything that's included here. I do want to highlight that he endured most grievous sorrows in his soul, the confession says, right? And most painful suffering in his body. Why do you think it's important? Why do you think our confession does this? Why does our confession bring out those two terms right there? That he suffered grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. What's our confession doing when it's bringing out those two things? Yeah, okay. Um, so that he's, he's fully human, right? Not just a human body. Yeah, that's great. Um, so it's highlighting that humanity. We do not believe that only Christ's body suffered, right? If only his body suffers, only your body is redeemed. So even our confession is particularly highlighting that in his humanity, the fullness of suffering, right? Soul and body. He was crucified and died. From the day of Christ until today, the lie has been pushed that Christ did not truly die. Right? Or, often in liberal circles, it's said that he didn't need to die. Right? That ultimately, he just, we just needed a good example of how to love the Lord, how to love our neighbor. But our confession is emphatic. No, he was crucified and died, and he must do so, right? We're going to get to that in a moment. So my question for you, so this is the humiliation, okay? The incarnation, 
fulfilling the law, right? Obedience to the law, undergoing suffering, crucifixion, death. My question to you, given this, um, which of these do we as Christians tend to doubt, tend to forget? I'm not talking about out there, right? Because we, we can't we can talk about the liberal church and things like that. I'm asking you in the pew, when it comes to the humiliation of Christ, do you feel like there's an aspect here that we as Christians are tempted often to overlook, to doubt, to forget? Yeah. That it was all due to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, And uh, we forget that you know, all of uh, his suffering and death and separation from God on the cross was because of us. Yeah, that's great. Because of that little lie we told a while ago, because of that bad attitude we had, or because of. Right. Yeah, yeah so it's, that it's due to us. Um, that's great. Luther said what crushed him uh, before the Reformation, what, what he felt led to the Reformation was. Um, not so much that Christ died, but that it was because of him that Christ died. He says, I held the nails. Right? That's what Luther said. I held the nails. Um, so that's great. Yeah, that, that we should have borne these sufferings. That's good. What else? I think he perfectly fulfilled it. We're going to get to active obedience in a second, but... Um, you know, so often um, that's undermined in the church. Cameron, do you have something? Yeah, I was going to say, I like how it talks about most grievous sorrows and most painful sufferings. I think we forget, like, we acknowledge that he died for us, but yeah. then understanding that he has gone through the most suffering of anyone ever. Yeah. Like, I think sometimes we forget that he understands any Yeah, that's great. Um, Right, that he underwent most grievous sorrows, most painful sufferings, um, and is able to sympathize with us, even in our worst sufferings. That's really good. All right, so that's his humiliation, his exaltation. He remained in the state of the dead. I can't get into this. Really wish I could. Uh, Pastor Nathan taught a Sunday school not too long ago uh, on the descent of Christ. Um, all I want to say here uh, is they changed the Westminster. Uh, Westminster says that he remained under the power of death. Our confession changes that to he remained in the state of the dead. And Jim Renahan in his commentary, uh, Sam also in his book, makes the argument that our confession here, they purposely changed that language because they wanted to uphold the descent clause of the Apostles' Creed, right, that he descended into the dead. Um, I can't get into that. Really wish I could. But all I'm wanting to do is just say, I think that our confession, I agree with her in that our confession is supporting creedal language there. I think that's important for us to acknowledge. Again, there's a whole Sunday school class on that. Go there. <laughs> all right, so he rose from the dead in the same body in which he suffered. So his resurrection, right? Um, why is it important that our confession says, and I mentioned this Wednesday night, so you may know this. If you do, please speak up. Uh, that he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. 
Why is that important? They don't just say that he rose from the grave, right? But he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. Why are they saying it that way? Melanie? Yeah. Right. So the body that was raised is the one that suffered, serving proof that the suffering did take place. Right? Here are the scars. Right? It wasn't some other person, right, who raised and they're like, well, Jesus, you know, we're calling this person Jesus. Or it wasn't some other body, right? It's the very body that was suffered. That's great. Proof. What else? Anything else? Yep. Is it because it gives us confidence that for our resurrection, mm-hmm. that we're following Christ, that it will also be us that will be resurrected. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yes, it gives us confidence that our resurrection, um, that we will be raised. The body of Christ that suffered is the one that is resurrected. The body of Christ, the church, that suffers will be resurrected. You will be resurrected just as Christ was resurrected. As it was for him, so it will be for us as well. And two, when they get to the ascension here, with which he also ascended into heaven, so even the body that suffered is the one that ascends. And so that's important too because the Christ who intercedes on our behalf is the one who bears the marks of the cross as he intercedes for us. So our confession is highlighting that reality of his resurrection. And there sits at the right hand of his father making intercession. Um, actually, before we get to that, um, it's interesting, the ascension. Um, you know, John sixteen seven, uh, Christ says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do we see the ascension as to our advantage? Or is it usually just kind of this thing that's like sort of tacked on at the end? Right? This is included in his exaltation. It is an essential act of redemption. Why? How? How is the ascension an essential act of redemption? What does it teach us? Chris? Yeah. Right. So Christ's human nature has ascended to the Father. You will ascend to the Father. Right. That's good. Um, I think it also, uh, you know, we're studying First Peter on Wednesday night. Uh, we are exiles, right? We're exiles in this world because we are seated with Christ. In the heavens. So your status as an exile is because Christ has ascended to the Father and there you sit with him. So it comforts us in being exiles here today. It's also, as he says in John, that if he ascends, he sends the Spirit. Right? So the Spirit who is at work this morning as we have gathered, who will be at work in the preaching of the word, who will be at work at the table in the means of grace, to strengthen your faith, that is the Spirit who was sent by the Son who ascended. So it is your advantage that he ascends. And there he sits at the right hand of his Father making intercession.
Um, again, these are all things we know, but I do want to highlight just the fact that um, his intercession is an act of uh, his exaltation. We're going to talk about how you can really separate that from his humiliation, but um, all of the power, all of the glory that Christ has received as resurrected and ascended Lord, uh, he uses to intercede on your behalf. And then finally, he shall return to judgment and angels at the end of the world. This is good news for us, right? The Christ who intercedes is coming again to present us before the Father. It's also bad news. The Christ who suffered the wrath of God is the one who will come to judge the wicked. So I asked this about the humiliation. Um, which of these... Do you think we as Christians are tempted to overlook, to forget, to, to doubt? Kind of already talked about, you know, the ascension. Um, but really the intercession, for me, um, the idea that Christ is continually before the Father interceding on my behalf. Um, I feel like oftentimes we as Christians aren't reveling in that as we should. The beauty and wonder that Christ continues to intercede on our behalf. think that now that Christ is in heaven, he's not fully man still, right? Like he shed that away when he ascended. That's not true. He remains forever and ever fully God, fully man before the Father after the incarnation. And that's really important. Yeah, that's great. Kim? Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, the saints of old in the Old Testament, how they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and surely how they, you know, Hundreds of years have gone by since this prophecy. Um, maybe even the doubt is that going to happen. Yeah. We today are waiting for something to happen. We're waiting for him to come back. Yeah. We have a tendency of, well, no, it's been hundreds of years. It, it, there's a tendency, I'm sure, people with the doubt. Is he going to return? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's interesting you bring that up because, again, in 1 Peter, he says, you know, you do not see Christ. Uh, but you love him. And we talked about how, like, one day we will. But how do you know that we will one day? Well, Peter goes right into the prophets have foretold. God made promises ages and ages ago that he fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And he will continue to keep those promises. Right? So we can read scripture and see that. Great. Yeah, that's good. Nathan? I mean, there's so many aspects, I think, of this that we neglect from time to time. Uh, you know, it struck me that, as you said, that he, that he rules, his session would be his rule. Yeah. It's different than his ascension. Uh, you emphasize the fact that he's making intercession, uh, but he is also reigning until all enemies are put under his feet. Yeah. And uh, you know, we've talked before about how he reigns over his church as mediator mm -hmm. 
redemptively, so he reigns over the world as the God-man, as yeah. creator, as right. Lord of all, one that's conquered. Yeah. And, um, you know, his session, his rule, and we, we, we tend to look out at the world and we see mm-hmm. everything is just spiraling downhill. Yeah. And we forget that uh, the events of history, the events, the rise and fall of governments and culture yep. uh, are um, essentially under his rule and yeah. the direct result of his rule. Right. And because it doesn't make sense to us, because it's it's wicked, yep. um, we tend to think that things are out of control and we forget the fact that he is ruling and reigning yeah. and he's putting all things under his feet. Yeah, that's great. Uh, uh, I think it was Sproul who said, don't measure the exaltation of Christ by the newspaper. Like, you're doing a Christological disservice if you measure the exaltation of Christ by the newspaper rather than the Word, right? Which tells us that we are exiles, which tells us that the world is going to hate the church, which tells us that things aren't going to get rosy and better and better and rosy and then Jesus is going to come back, right? Um, it tells us that we're exiles. And what you may see by science and the culture and the world and the powers that be are telling you that Christ is not exalted. The newspaper tells you every day that Christ is not exalted. But the words, which reminds us, our confession, says no. That's great. All right. So Jim Renahan just, man, this is such a great quote. He says, ultimately what this paragraph is saying, the eternal Son of God, having assumed a true human nature, has worked, is working, and will bring his labor to consummation at the last day. This paragraph, and I would say his humiliation and exaltation, is a sweeping summary of cosmic history with Christ at the center. Love that. It is only so, because what we just talked about it's humiliation and exaltation, is the foundation of that work is the covenant of redemption made before time began between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, so his work in God's purpose. So we've seen his work in history. Now our confession turns to his work in God's purpose. So what is God's purpose of <coughs> that work in history? And again, we see another way of dividing up and categorizing the work of Christ. Paragraph 5. Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. If you don't hear 1 Peter there, I mean, that is 1 Peter right there. You're being guarded and kept by the power of God. And there's an inheritance that is yours, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that is what our confession says here. So, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself. What categories do we see there? We've talked about this before. Um, is there a certain category of dividing up the work of Christ that we see there? Anybody? Jacob? I uh, see our confession affirms both his active and passive obedience. Yep. That's it. So, what is uh, Christ's active and passive obedience, Jacob? 
Uh, active just means that he is fulfilling the law on our behalf. Um, he's born under heaven, of course, and perfectly fulfills it. Then uh, passive obedience, uh, uh, basically suffering under the wrath of God. Yeah. But not passively, in the sense that he's just letting it happen. Yep. Yes, absolutely. That's a great distinction. Sounds like you've been reading Horton. So uh, that paragraph is the active and passive obedience of Christ, right? Um, so his active obedience, like Jacob's saying, is his fulfilling of the law, right? His perfect obedience, um, his uh, suffering under the, the human nature, all of these kind of things, the infirmity of the human nature, these kind of things. And then his passive obedience is his suffering under the wrath of God. And passive, like Jacob mentioned, doesn't mean that he's not active. It's from the Latin passio, which means passion, right? So the passion of Christ, right? That's what we mean when we say passive. He's not passive uh, in his passive obedience. He is actively suffering under the wrath of God, and that's very important. So God's purpose in the work of Christ, in the active and passive obedience, is to fully satisfy the justice of God. He perfectly and completely fulfills the law on your behalf and drank the cup of the wrath of God to its fullest. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a very popular uh, passage that we all know very well. Um, we read, um, For our sake, God made him to be sin. Okay, so there's passive obedience. So he's pouring out his wrath upon Christ, his wrath against sin upon Christ. So for our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Okay, there's active obedience, perfectly fulfilling the law, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it fully satisfies the justice of God on our behalf. It also procured reconciliation. I think this might be just the greatest two words in our confession. Christ procures our reconciliation. Procured in the past, right? Our reconciliation with God. He didn't simply uh, show us how to be reconciled to God. He doesn't simply show us how uh, to love God and be a good example of loving God. He didn't simply make reconciliation possible, right? He procured reconciliation with God. Colossians 1, 21. Um, here's you as an active party. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind at doing evil deeds. Here's Christ. Listen to the subject of these verbs. He has now reconciled in his body by his flesh. In, the, in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you, in order to present you, you passive, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Reconciliation is procured. This is the purpose of God in the active and passive obedience of Christ. And then finally, again, this is First Peter to a T. Uh, purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. Notice the language of covenant redemption coming back in. We're talking about the purpose of God here. He has purchased 
an everlasting inheritance by his active and passive obedience. Um, again, I think of First Peter. When first, when Peter says, remember he says, "You do not uh, love, uh, you do not see him, but you love him." Um, obtaining the end of your faith, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Obtaining—that's a present participle. That's right now. It's actually not obtaining. I translate it receiving. So you're receiving right now the outcome, the telos, the end of your salvation. Right now. Because it's purchased by Christ. Colossians 1.12, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. This is the beauty and wonder of not only Christ's active and passive obedience, but for what purpose does Christ obey? For what purpose does Christ suffer? J. Gresser Machen, one of the most famous, uh, most brilliant theologians in the history of the modern church, on his deathbed. Those are his dying words. Think about that. One of the smartest men. Has all the theology you could imagine, right? He's the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And what does he say? What's his last words? Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. This is my question. Um, I don't know if we phrase that with, uh, do you feel that we as a church collectively can agree and say with Machen, thank God for the active obedience of Christ? Do you see in the church somewhere, maybe even in your own heart, where one of these, the active or the passive obedience of Christ, is emphasized to the detriment of the other? Jacob? Yeah, I think how often the gospel is presented in broad evangelical circles about um, how you know, Christ you know, died for you and stuff. Raises your debts, um, you're good, and he kind of gives you a second chance. But it's on you to kind of build up that credit for yourself. Yeah. Um, the beautiful good news of the gospel is that Christ not only erased your debt, but he added his own meritorious work to your account. Yes. Um, and I think just in, in the broader today, we, we miss that in our gospel presentation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would agree with that. The broader church. Um, there tends to be a tendency that Christ died for you, and I guess it's good, um, but not so much a focus on the act of obedience to Christ, right? That, that the law has been fulfilled on your behalf. So the slate's been clean, right? But the act of obedience is not just that your slate is clean, but that Christ has given you his slate, right, of perfect obedience. Uh, it's not just as if I've never sinned, which I see people say all the time, like justification, just as if I've never sinned. It's just as if I've always obeyed, Right? But I don't want to just talk about broader evangelicals. I think all of us struggle to believe this. I mean, all of us struggle to believe, not only that our slaves have been clean, but that I'm righteous before God, Pastor Nathan. I have a friend, a pastor friend, who uh, 
Again, it's from the Latin passio, so passion, right? So the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ on the cross. So we're not here contrasting um, activity, right, with uh, passivity, right? We're merely, yeah, Pastor. Yeah, I was going to say passive means being acted upon. Yeah, acted upon. That's great. Yeah. So even in his being acted upon, he's still actively submitting to that. Yeah, right. But his uh, obedience uh, or his passive suffering is the fact that he's being acted upon from the outside, but it's positive obedience to the law is him doing the action. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good way of saying it. So when you think of that, he subjects himself to the cross, which Andy also took the punishment that God gave upon him. Yeah. That's just kind of the understanding. Yeah, that's great. Um, just, yeah, he's acted upon, which is generally the classical understanding of passion, right? Is to be upon to be suffered upon um, in, in that kind of terminology so he's yes receiving that suffering um, but we also need to highlight that he voluntarily right takes that suffering right? he voluntarily sets his face like flint to Jerusalem all right so his work in history his work in God's purpose and now, paragraph six, his work in all of time. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages. Successfully from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed. 
and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head. And the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday, today, and forever. <coughs> this paragraph is making an argument um, that um, the virtue and efficacy, the benefit of Christ's um, accomplished work um, was present, that is the virtue of it, the efficacy of it, was present throughout all of time. And really, the, a good way of sort of organizing our thoughts here is to work from the bottom up. So, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world. So, the covenant of redemption, again, right? The Father, Son, and Spirit have decreed that the Lamb would be slain. Revelation 13.8 says that your name as a Christian has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. This decreed lamb to be slain is revealed in those promises, types, and sacrifices and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head. And through these types, through these promises that reveal this slain lamb, the efficacy, the virtue, the benefit of that slaying is communicated to the saints throughout all of time. Therefore, what this is saying is that salvation has always been by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, Pastor Nathan uses the ice cream analogy uh, that I love where um, he's buying ice cream uh, and there's five people in front of him and then there's like five people behind, right? And every person who comes up first to buy ice cream, they buy the ice cream, but they don't have the money. He does. And so they point back, right? And they say, he who's coming is paying for me. Right? He who's coming is paying for me. And then he gets up and he pays and says, those who are coming, I'm also paying for. Right? So then as they come up to buy ice cream, they say, he paid for me. Right? He paid for me. He paid for me. So it's the same act, it's the same person, it's effectual, it is communicated to the elect in the Old Testament. So salvation has always been by or through faith, by grace through faith in Christ alone. Why must we say this? Why is it important for us to say this? What happens if we disagree with this? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, so if, if even in the Old Testament, if salvation wasn't by faith alone, they, they, they did have something to boast in regarding their salvation. Right? Kim? Let's say, yeah, if any of that depends on me, I have reason to go. Yeah, right. That's great. Ultimately, what both of you are saying, if there was ever a time that salvation was not through faith alone in Christ alone, we're in trouble. Like, why is that not the case today? 
And is there something I can do? Can I mess up big enough to make that go back? To change that? Right? Another question is, how does this change our reading of the Old Testament? How does this change our view of the Old Testament? If it's true that the lamb slain, that the gospel is revealed through shadows, types, and promises, to the extent that the benefits of the gospel are communicated to the saints of the Old Testament, how does that change how we Christians today view and read the Old Testament? Melanie? Yeah, look for Christ. Yeah, absolutely. The Old Testament is not simply a book about nice stories and heroic people and uh, examples for us to follow. Those are all there, right? But no, Christ, the gospel, is revealed progressively, as we've seen in chapter 7, in the Old Testament. It opens up the rest of your Bible for you as a Christian. Right? There's 66 books now <laughs> that you can read as a Christian. That's good. All right. So finally, just two more paragraphs real quick. Uh, his work in the church. To all those, this is paragraph eight, to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption. He does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. So Christ has accomplished redemption. Now here we get to the application of that redemption. Love that they said the same, right? The same redemption that's accomplished is what is applied. By making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by the Spirit, revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word. (coughs) In spirit and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation and all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. What we have here is his threefold office. As a priest, he makes intercession for them and unites them to himself. By his spirit. That is, in his humiliation, he intercedes his blood. In his exaltation, he continues to intercede before the Father. Just as the priest would lay the sinner's hand right on the goat, uniting the sinner to the goat or to the lamb that was slain, so Christ unites us to himself. As prophet, he reveals to them, in and by his word, the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey. Again, in his humiliation. He is not merely telling us who God is. He is the Word, right, incarnate. He is God incarnate. And he continues in his exaltation to reveal the gospel to the elect by the Spirit through the preaching of the Word for their faith and salvation. And then third and finally, his kingly office, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom. In his humiliation, he conquers the condemnation of sin and death for his subjects. In his exaltation, he continues to conquer the power of sin by by removing its 
reign. And he continues to conform us to his image today. He is the prophet, priest, and king. Very all-encompassing. Um, love the way this paragraph ends, though. And all of free and absolute grace, without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. This mediation, Christ's threefold office, is not a mediation of law. It is a mediation of grace. He's not a priest expecting us to lay down our lives, although he calls us to do so. He's not a prophet saying, do this or else, right? Like a covenant of works. And he's not a king who has left us to our own devices. Christ's threefold office mediates grace and not by your own merit. Right? There's not a condition which you need to meet for Christ to be your prophet, priest, and king. And then finally, and this is our last, the number and orders of these offices is necessary. This is his work in our need. This is paragraph 10. For in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetic office. So he redeems us not merely by making God known, right, but bringing us into the knowledge, the covenantal knowledge of God. In respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable to God. So he overcomes our alienation and our imperfections by his priestly office and therefore reconciles us to God. Finally, in respect to our avariceness or laziness, right, our slowness and utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. He cannot do any of this if he is not fully God and fully man. Okay? And he does all of this as the covenant servant of the covenant of redemption. He works in history, right? In his humiliation and exaltation to fulfill God's purposes in reconciling us, in procuring reconciliation by his active and passive obedience. And he does so as the God-man, the prophet, priest, and king. This is our confession on the doctrine of Christ. I wish I could take questions. I don't have time. Um, we've got to wrap up. Um, but if you do have questions, please come talk to me. Let's pray.